Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Emily Burrell, sitting in today for Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. Well, thanks for having me, Will. We certainly missed you a lot last season. I missed you guys, and it's very good to be back. You and Siva, it sounds like you had a great time digging into the relationship between culture and democracy. We did. Um, and this season, we're going to continue pulling at some of those threads. Today, we're doing it from the perspective of war and collective memory. How does the trauma of conflict shape both a society and its institutions? Yeah, it's a huge question, and gosh, we have an awful lot of examples. Of course, around here, oddly, it always seems to be something to do with the American Civil War that's hanging over us, and that's more than 150 years ago. It looms very large in our domestic politics. But when it comes to global politics, I think the Second World War looms even larger. It ended in 1945, but wow, it remains a powerful political reference point around the world. Well, I bet this was on your mind when you were in Britain over the fall, right, Well. Oh, man, they're obsessed with the Second World War. There's an endless appetite for films and books about, you know, the plucky fighter pilots that won the Battle of Britain or the heroic sailors who got the men off the beaches of Dunkirk. You know, all of that stuff about Britain fighting the Germans alone, it certainly influenced the Brexit fiasco. Mm. But not everybody agrees on the same stories about the past, right? So in some places, the memory of the so-called good war has been manipulated to serve really powerful interests. Like in Russia, Vladimir Putin has tried to justify his militarism with this very weird tale of Ukraine somehow being run by neo-Nazis. Or in Japan, for many years, the government hid the army's abuses and occupied China and Korea. And it struggles to this day to own up to these war crimes. Very true, Emily. And another good example of this process has actually been unfolding in China. And we've invited just the person to talk through that with us. He's Rana Mitter. He's a historian at the Harvard Kennedy School and an expert on U.S.-Asia relations. He's the author of Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, and most recently, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Welcome to Democracy in Danger, Rana. Will, Emily, it's great to be here. Well, let's start uh, with the forgetting part before we get to the memory part. Um, your first uh, big book on China during during uh, World War II was called Forgotten Ally. And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how China got forgotten, at least in Western narratives, perhaps. Uh, after all, it was a devastating conflict for China. I think perhaps 10 million people, maybe roughly, uh, died in, in China during the Second World War, a, a traumatic experience. And yet, um, you know, you, you've, you've, you've highlighted the way in which that story has sort of gone missing, at least in our Western accounts of the war. Why, why did that happen? So I think one of the ways, Will, in which I first came to realize that the story had been forgotten was when I saw actually a box containing a DVD. And for your younger listeners, that's an antique form of data <laughs> preservation, which I'll explain perhaps on another podcast. But it was a DVD actually dating from the 60th anniversary of the end of World War II, the year 2005. And it was produced in the southwestern Chinese city of Chongqing. And the cover of this box for the DVD had on it symbols of four cities. They had uh, Big Ben, uh, the clock, of course, uh, on the Houses of Parliament in London. They had the US Capitol building, and they had also the Red Star Tower in uh, Moscow. But in addition, they also had a monument which sits in the centre of the city of Chongqing. And Chongqing was the wartime temporary capital of China during those years, uh, the 1930s and 1940s, when China fought Japan. Now, 
although this was produced for a domestic Chinese audience, I think the message that this DVD was putting out there was partly aimed at an international audience. Because I bet you if you go to anyone on the street in the US, in Britain, probably actually in Russia as well, and say, who won World War II? You'd hear talk about the Soviet Union, you'd hear talk about the British Empire, you'd hear talk about the United States. Very few people would mention China. And yet China was not only a wartime ally uh, during those terrible years. It was, of course, the first of the wartime allies because the war broke out in July 1937 between China and Japan. And Europe, of course, came in famously in September of 1939. And the two come together uh, in, in 1941. So in that sense, I would say that the forgetting comes as a result probably of the changes in the Cold War. Within a very, very short period, between 1945 and 1950, China and Japan swapped places in the Western mind. In 1945, China was a wartime ally, having just defeated the Japanese. Japan, of course, was the enemy. By 1950, Japan was a staunch Cold War ally, under occupation still, of the United States and indeed the British and the West. And China was now a communist state, an ally of the Soviet Union. And I think that exclusion of China from the narrative comes at least in part because in the Cold War era, it was Mao's China, communist China, that was in people's minds. And the memory of it as a wartime ally simply didn't figure anymore. Mm-hmm. So, Rana, could you say more about this? I mean, in, in your recent book, you really show to the point that you were just making that it was not only the West that didn't pay very much attention to the war experience in China, but that this Chinese um, communist government also didn't really want to talk very much about World War II. Why, why not? Um, what changed? That's right, Emily. Uh, Part of the erasure of memory, the disappearance of memory of that period came very much within China itself. And the reason is that when Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong's troops conquered China, the mainland in 1949, and set up the People's Republic of China, the last thing they wanted to do was to give any credit or positivity to the regime that they had defeated. And that was the regime of Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist Kuomintang leader of China, whose uh, government and troops fled to the island of Taiwan, where they remained ever, ever since, you might say, never returning, of course, to the mainland at all. But in doing that, and saying that actually this was a righteous victory of the communists against the evil nationalists who had exploited and bullied the country and basically uh, deserved to lose, they had to erase an awkward historical fact, which is that actually the bulk of the set-piece fighting, the battles, the major campaigns that were fought by China, the country, against the Japanese were organized by the nationalist government of that time. And for many decades, until the reform era from the 1980s, 90s and beyond, that story simply could not be told in Mao's China because it went against the political idea that the only people who defeated the Japanese were the Chinese Communist Party. Well, you know, Ronald, what I'm interested in is how out of this morass, there's a a civil war going on in China, both during the war and after the war. There's the Japanese fighting, the the Americans always in the picture as they're beginning to defeat Japan and filling in that power vacuum. But out of all this this, uh, extraordinary tumult, you now find that China is able to extract something that you would call anyway China's good war. It doesn't sound like there's 
any way to pull a good story out of this this uh, this mixture that you've uh, that you've put together for us? Well, I have to confess, Will, that that title of the book you kindly mentioned, China's Good War, is intended to be ironic, and also it's a reference. Many listeners may know a classic work of oral history, really, from the 1980s, Studs Terkel's The Good War, which is of course about the U.S contribution to World War II. For many people, of course, it was a horrific war, particularly if you were fighting it and if you were, say, you know, African-American, other uh, groups who were perhaps uh, not necessarily given the full credit they should have been at that time. It didn't seem good at all. And yet the moral narrative of World War II has never really been recaptured in popular imagination in the way that that one particular war has. It didn't come with Korea, didn't come with Vietnam, didn't come with the other wars, certainly not with Iraq, uh, the wars that the US has been involved with uh, since then. So translate all that for China. Essentially, China, since, let's say, 1949 and the People's Republic. What are the major events that you can bring to mind? Well, there's the Great Leap Forward of 1958 to 61, an economic experiment which went horribly wrong and ended up with the starvation to death of upwards of 20 million people. I mean, that killed a lot more people than World War II, actually. Mm -hmm. 1960s, okay, the Cultural Revolution, one of the most violent, uh, turbulent, uh, horrific periods of politics in any country, let alone China. And then the period after that, it's calmer, China reforms economically, but you have Tiananmen Square, 1989. So actually, perhaps it wasn't surprising that eventually the Chinese communists would go back to World War II and try and find a mythical quality there. And that was my meaning when thinking about good war. In other words, they were trying to construct that story. But the Chinese, and the Chinese Communist Party in particular, have a particular obstacle to overcome. In the 80s and 90s, when they decided to rehabilitate World War II, they had to think, what should we do about our old enemies, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, who actually, we know, did play an important part in the war, but we don't want to say that in quite that way, because, of course, it would push back against the idea that the Communist Party was really the architect of victory against Japan. And they ended up with a very interesting piece of historical sleight of hand, in which actually, slowly but surely, that old history of their enemies, the Chiang Kai-shek nationalist government, was brought back into the story of the Good War, and they were turned, rather bizarrely, into Patriots who did fight the Japanese effectively between 1937 and 45, and then suddenly flipped round into enemies in a civil war that was fought from 1946 to 49. It's not entirely elegant, but politically, it was a useful way for them to try and square that circle and create the idea that World War II was a quote marks good war in terms of the moral standing that it had in creating modern China. So this is really fascinating, Rana. And what you've done is you've painted a picture for us of um, sort of the creation of new narratives, new storylines, right? New heroes, new new bad guys. Um, you know, in the United States, for example, for a long time, we had John Wayne or Henry Fonda depicting great war leaders in popular movies. Um, but nowadays, of course, the actors are younger, but they're still speaking the same lines that you would have found in older war movies. This is, this is a powerful uh, trope, you could say, in America. American film. I mean, are the Chinese also using film to publicize some of these takes that, that you've been describing um, about World War II and this reimagining of the story? Emily, um, cinema is one of the arenas. It's one of the battlegrounds, you might say, where these collective memories of World War II really take off in uh, China. Let me quickly give you 
two examples, one of which I think is successful and one of which I think actually didn't work quite quite so well. Both are available on, I think, streaming if you mm. want to to see them with, with English subtitles. Mm. So the one that I think can count as a success is a movie that came out in 2012 called Back to 1942. It was a, what is it, 70th anniversary uh, of an event. What was that event? It was of the famine in Henan province, uh, central China. We don't have exact figures even now, but it's plausible to say that four million people starved to death because essentially of wartime conditions exacerbated by the Chinese government. And this was a taboo story that was never really talked about uh, in uh, China after it happened. But then with the opening up of a kind of wider arena for discovering the war and what it meant, one of China's biggest film directors, a man named Feng Xiaogang, sometimes nicknamed China's Steven Spielberg, I mean, he's that that big, um, made this movie in which they went back and made an unflinching, really, you know, wrenching movie about the wartime famine and placed very directly as a consequence of the war. Big box office hit in China and also gave a boost to local historians in China. I mean, because everyone seen the movie and wanted to know what really happened in Henan. So real history was being boosted as a result of the film. And the film also took on a somewhat sensitive subject um, in many ways. So I've said that that is, um, you know, a successful example. Let, let me briefly, if I may, give you an example of something that I think didn't work so well. You mentioned John Wayne, Henry Fonda. Is it right if I bring up Bruce Willis? Absolutely. Uh, now, Bruce Willis actually at the moment I know is, is not well and very distinguished actor in, in many ways. And I think we all love Die Hard. But I think probably the movie for which he would not necessarily want to be remembered is a Chinese language, except for Bruce Willis, Chinese language movie called Airstrike. Or um, it's actually had very, well, it had various names, but I think Airstrike is the one that you'll normally find it under. In, in Chinese, it's just called Da Hong Zhao, the Great Bombing. And it's basically was supposed to be a war epic, essentially the equivalent of the London Blitz. But for China's wartime capital, Chongqing, being blitzed uh, in the late 1930s, early 1940s. And Bruce Willis was brought in um, as a sort of American figure, a bit like a fictionalized version of someone like General Joe Stilwell, the uh, American general who was uh, chief of staff to the Chinese troops during those years, who would kind of G up the Chinese troops and get them to actually, you know, fight in a, in a modern way. There's one line, actually, which is in English, which one of the Chinese actors puts forward, uh, says to Bruce Willis, where he says, permission to kick ass, sir, which is one of the... <laughs> A few English language lines in the movie. Now, what World War II movie doesn't have that line? Well, Come on, I have many, to say, I wonder many, where the line came from because one thing that happened when they signed up Bruce Willis for this movie is he said, I'm happy to do this, but I have a friend who would help me deal with the script, and that friend apparently was Mel Gibson. So, you know, oh my a lot of stuff is going. Anyway, there's a there's a bigger story behind all of that, and I won't go into all of it here, but it involved, you know, a distribution getting pulled, and then the movie was banned because one of the female stars was uh, paying for tax evasion, allegedly, in, in China, and it all went horribly wrong. But the movie itself was always intended to be something that Western audiences would see. That's why they hired Bruce Willis. They wanted to say, look, what's one of the biggest stars we can get from the Western world? And maybe people in America or Britain or Europe will go and see this film and understand China's heroic war effort. Well, I'm looking at you two guys, I'm sure you love the movies. Did either of you see Airstrike with Bruce Willis? No, Miss, but miss that one. Okay, I'm well, thinking that, that, that we're going to get some some views of this movie after this uh, I'll give you one view that I think came off the IMDb website where it said this film is about the horrific atrocities committed by the Japanese against the Chinese during World War II. But the real criminals are the director, the producer, <laughs> oh and the scriptwriter of this film. By the way, if people are interested, um, I have available on BBC Sounds uh, a radio documentary called um, Japan's Never Ending War, which 
despite the title, is actually about Chinese and Japanese views of World War II through the movies and how they combat with each other. So do click in and check that out if you want to hear more about some of these films. That's fabulous. I, when you come on the show next, we're going to do just the films. Mm-hmm. Movies are one you know, site of memory and, and of conflict, of course. Uh, museums are another. And I'm sure China has been going through some of the same uh, uh, challenges in deciding what to depict and how to depict uh, the, the war in, uh, in, in embodied in museums and exhibitions. You know, no country has, has done this completely correctly. I mean, the United States famously got in, in, in the midst of a, of a terrible fiasco when the Smithsonian Museum decided it wanted to display the Enola Gay, which was the B-29 bomber that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And they had the idea, which I think is a rather sophisticated one, of showing not just the plane, but the devastation that occurred on Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped. So artifacts, melted watches, lunchboxes all crumpled up and that kind of thing. Well, there was a huge uh, backlash of criticism. No, you, you couldn't sully the memory of the great heroes who fought and won the war by showing the consequences of the war on the ground. And to this day, the Enola Gay is sitting out in a wonderful big museum near Dulles Airport, but it has absolutely no signage explaining the significance of the atomic bomb or really the role of the uh, Enola Gay in the, in the Pacific War. Are there similar examples of, of China's sort of confrontation and struggle and effort to get it right or, get, or in their case, come up with a narrative that they can defend publicly? One of the most hotly contested areas in which China has, you know, essentially fought historical battles is on the question of what you put in museums. So, This is generally true. It's true, of course, about World War II, but it's true about the history of the revolution, more broadly speaking. And actually, if you go to the heart of Beijing, Tiananmen Square, uh, where you have, you know, the Great Hall of the People and the Museum of what used to be the Museum of Revolutionary History. I think it's now been officially renamed the Museum of National History. But the story in there keeps changing in all sorts of ways. And particularly anything that happens after the establishment of the People's Republic of China becomes very problematic that way, because there are so many areas like the Cultural Revolution, which are not whole-scale banned. That's too much to say, and that's that's misleading. But are certainly discussed in very, very guarded terms, and usually with a very kind of set narrative. Oh, it was all bad things done by, you know, one small group of people nicknamed the Gang of Four, which included Mao's wife. And that means that coming back to World War II would seem to be, again, a useful part of educating school kids in all sorts of ways. Now, I would say that the museums that are looking to tell the story of World War II are essentially caught in a sort of bind because with many of the events that take place, uh, which were carried out by communist troops, who of course were very important uh, in terms of um, uh, ultimate defeat of the Japanese, there's a sort of hagiographical element. So for instance, there's one particular element, it's known as the the Five Heroes incident, um, about whether or not these particular people had, you know, fought to the death or surrendered or, or something in between. And actually, recently, some of the more perhaps sort of historically informed and nuanced explanations of that kind of incident were basically ruled out of court because China, a little bit like Russia, has recently passed uh, a law saying that the slandering of revolutionary heroes is no longer permitted. In fact, there's a specific political term for it, Li Shi Shu Yui, which uh, uh, Xi Jinping uses a lot, and it means historical nihilism. Pushing away at the uh, the legends has become something that is really very, very strongly, I was going to say discouraged, it's really banned, really is the way to put it. Textbooks would be another example of that. And the difficulty is that academic historians in China, 
actually like academic historians everywhere else, are very keen to be doing the real history. You know, they want archives, they want documents. And the one thing they absolutely know and write about when they can is that all these stories are complex. Mm. They're nuanced. They're all the things that historians love and politicians hate. And obviously, historians in China are subject to much, much more stricture in terms of mm. what they can say and when they're curating museums, whether they're you know helping to advise on textbooks, whether they're simply writing academic monographs. The atmosphere for telling complex stories has become much, much more narrow in China, even in the last 10 years or so, mm. I'd say, under Xi Jinping. I mean, one of the things that is, um, you know, that we that we consider is that rhetorically, at least, communist states are supposed to be about the empowerment of the working people across national boundaries. What you were just pointing out is is this sort of shift. The shift has been it's a global struggle against uh, fascism. There also seems to be indications that China seems intent on telling a past that's about its own national strength and identity. Um, I mean, has China turned its back on the ideological arguments that the communist world used to make in this move towards what you're telling us about anti-fascists? It hasn't turned its back on it, but it Uh has adapted it in some Uh smart ways. So... I was thinking, actually, the title of the podcast is Democracy in Danger. Mm -hmm. I was thinking there might be at least some... Chinese observers would say the title should be Democracy in Danger, and that's a good thing because the idea that is very prevalent in the Western view of what World War II was fought for Mm -hmm. was war for democracy, you know, war for freedom and that sort of uh, side of things. And certainly from the American, Western European and even Japanese point of view, you could say that this is something that essentially was a terrible war that had to be fought because of the values that emerged from it. But if you're Russia, and certainly if you're China, arguing that you were expending millions of lives and huge amounts of blood and treasure in World War II for democracy in that liberal sense is clearly not the argument. I mean, yes, you know, China would argue that, of course, its form of communist democracy is democracy as the Soviet Union would have done uh, as well. But we're clearly talking about a different sort of beast. During the era of high communism and international Maoism, as I say, it wasn't really brought up that much at all. You know, China was a forgotten ally by China itself as much as it was by the Western world. But that's changed very much in the 1980s, 90s and beyond. And I would say that the way they've done that is to go for a different ideology, which is internationalism. What I mean is something like this. If you go to um, major international gatherings, Munich Security Conference, Davos, those sorts of places where Xi Jinping, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, you know, all sorts of prominent Chinese states, uh, I was going to say statespersons, the vast majority of men, these politicians will often speak about China as a steady and a reliable member of the international community. And I have to say that that language ramped up very, very much for good or ill. I just observe it as a fact in early 2017, before and around the inauguration of President Trump. How did they do it? They referred to the products of World War II and particularly the United Nations. So China would and does have its spokes, uh, spokespeople say very strongly, the world should remember that China was the first signatory to the United Nations Charter, Mm -hmm. San Francisco, 1945. That's largely because the way it was put together alphabetically meant that it came first. But the point is that Chairman Mao, at least in his most revolutionary days in the 50s and 60s, would never have said that in a million years. You know, the United Nations was a bourgeois internationalist outfit that had to be condemned and make way for a new Maoist revolutionary future. Now, 
China's leaders are basically putting on a little kind of white moustache and a Homburg hat and playing Dean Acheson. In other words, well, China is now saying, yep, okay, that's fine. And we were there too. And we created it too. And our sacrifices in World War II created that as well. And that enables them to essentially argue, by extension, that 1945 and the end of World War II was not a fight for the kind of democracy that, you know, you get in Frank Capra's Why We Fight films, but it was a fight to create an order in which China had a central part to create stability and regional um, stability in Asia as well as globally. And that's the contribution that China made then, and it should be given credit for trying to do it now. Well, I got to ask the Taiwan question, because if China now is coming up with a story about uh, a just war, a good war, an, a war that had to be fought, and a, and a new order that is being constructed or has been constructed since 1945, then Taiwan is, is that much more of a piece of annoying, unfinished business from the war years that really needs to be swept up together uh, with a dustbin uh, and carried out the, the, the old broken China, if you, if you like, that, uh, the, that they want to sort of sort and, and move on from. Is the story you're telling about uh, heightened national identity by using the Second World War, is that playing directly into the Taiwan problem? Taiwan occupies an intriguing and in some ways very uncomfortable place in terms of that World War II story. So first of all, it's worth remembering what Taiwan was doing in World War II. It was fighting in World War II, but largely it was fighting on the Japanese side because, of course, Taiwan was a Japanese colony between 1895 and 1945. And actually something like, I want to say, over 200,000 uh, Taiwanese Chinese joined up in the Japanese Imperial Army and fought actually on the mainland um, as well. So the history of the relationship between colonization but also service in the imperial armies was a complex one, as indeed was the case also for the British and French empires. Well, you know this very well, of course, uh, Emily. So with all of that complexity, Taiwan is not an easy story to weave into a World War II narrative. And essentially, I would say that in the present day, there's probably two separate narratives, neither which is necessarily politically entirely useful. One is largely held by people who are descendants, or even if they're very old, actually did flee to Taiwan in 1949 when the communists took over. And that generation of people uh, essentially lived on the mainland through the war years, you know, fought against Japan, resisted, and it became a very, very central part of their identity. And for those families, it remained so all the way into the, um, you know, the early 20th, uh, uh, 20th century. For the people who were from families or are from families that essentially, uh, you know, have been on the island for centuries and centuries, so they're Chinese in terms of ethnicity, in terms of form of language they speak and so forth, but they have a different um, heritage, you might say, the World War II experience isn't really something that is central to the way that they think about themselves. And one ironic aspect, I'll just, you know, comes to mind that gives, gives, me, the, uh, gives, gives me pause for thought, came... Well, let's say about 1992, I think it would have been, not that long ago in, in historical terms, when um, Li Denghui, the first democratically elected president of Taiwan, as it turned out, a candidate of the nationalist Kuomintang parties when it democratized, but someone who came from a Taiwanese-Chinese background, sometimes said, and I think he knew that people in Beijing would be just hitting the roof when they heard this, I really find sometimes that Japanese is a more natural language for me to speak than Chinese, because of course he'd grown up, you know, in that in the penumbra of that generation of people who had had Japanese as a colonial language, but also a natural sort of professional language. Just as, of course, many of India's post 
1947 independence prime ministers were as comfortable in English as they were in uh, Hindi or other um, languages of the Indian subcontinent. And in some cases, even though they probably wouldn't have admitted that, more comfortable in English than they were necessarily in Hindi, Bengali or other languages that way too. Rana, just to bring things back to China and to today and debates about history, I mean, let me give you an optimistic scenario. When societies start to have public arguments about their past, that's a good thing. And that might enhance public culture and a sense of uh, ownership over history. We can argue and agree to disagree, and we can come up with a version of history that then will be changed over time. Each generation can reframe its own past. That's a sign, actually, of a, of a, of a relatively healthy public discourse that we encourage in democracies. Is that what's happening here in China? Or if it isn't, is there at least a hint that there's a underway um, a willingness to engage in debates about the past that is different from what you might have found in China 30 years ago? I think that there is actually still a very lively discussion about aspects of history going on in China. And the place to look for that is social media. Social media, as in the rest of the world, has transformed China. It is heavily censored, it is heavily controlled in lots of areas, but it's also such a huge phenomenon that not everything can necessarily be held down. And just to give one quick example of where it's done real good, I would say, actually, is in campaigns in the last you know, few years to try and get pensions for the few remaining nationalist Chinese soldiers who served in World War II, but because they weren't in the communist armies, never got full pensions. So that was a sort of social campaign through social media. That said, I think we are in a time now when, after a certain amount of openness, relatively speaking, in the early 2000s, we are in a much more constrained period because of this fear of historical nihilism, to use the term we used before. And I think at least for some years, that element of trying to box in and control what's talked about in history is going to be very much what the party wants to do. But I think that the academic historians, of whom there are many, and they're very talented, very smart people, are going to do their best within the constraints they have to try and push back and make sure that the complex, rich, and very nuanced history of 20th century China is still out there somewhere in the discussion within China itself. Well, Rana Mitter, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. It's been a huge pleasure to be here with you, Emily, and you, Will. And this is my first visit to University of Virginia, but I very much hope it's not my last and we get to continue the conversation at some point. We certainly will. That was Rana Mitter. He is the S.T. Lee Professor of U.S.-Asia Relations at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. His latest book is China's Good War. He's also the author of Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, 1937-1945. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back. Well, that's a wild story about China rethinking and rewiring its memories of the Second World War and turning all of that 
mayhem into something powerful and usable for the present. And of course, it may not be the kind of history that we would want to write. At the same time, all nations are involved in shaping their own nation's history and making it useful, politically useful, uh, as a rallying point for the domestic agenda that they want to set. I'm sure there are many examples in in the area you're familiar with, Emily, Africa, of, of nations doing just this. Absolutely. I'm thinking about something I was just teaching. I'm teaching a class on sovereignty in Africa with my colleague uh, Amir Syed, and we were talking about forgeries of chronicles in the 19th century as a way of creating legitimacy, legitimate claims to rule, and make history speak to one's uh, sort of righteousness. It's not only China who's been doing this, right? No, I mean, look at the U.S., for heaven's sakes. I mean, we are not only fighting over the legacy of the Civil War, but we're really fighting over the very meaning of the founding on a daily basis. Our nightly news is yeah. basically, what can the president do with respect to the Constitution? What can he not do? What mm-hmm. do the various amendments to the Constitution say that is mm-hmm. legal and not legal? We still don't agree at all on what even our founding documents say. That's and right. in a society where the, the stakes of disagreement in public are so much higher, mm-hmm. uh, a, a repressive society, an authoritarian society, a society in which the government controls the media, well, it, it's an even more difficult um, and more daring prospect to open up a new angle on the past. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about the Second World War and how China's massaging it to its own interests, mm-hmm. and we certainly have examples of America doing that over with the Second World War as well as other conflicts. The Second World War was a very important one in Africa, generally yes. speaking, right? It was the yes. time of, of mobilization of, of men who served in, mm-hmm. in various military mm-hmm. um, formations for different countries. It, they also brought back with them from the front a kind of consciousness of national independence, mm-hmm. uh, skill at leadership, and how to use military yes. <laughs> militaries for certain political yeah. ends. Does World War II still resonate on the continent? And if That's so, a- how? That's a great question, Will. I've been thinking about this a lot. In, in the areas of West Africa where I work, one of the ways it resonates is in how people talk about uh, what France still owes, for example, what France still owes Africans. Um, a lot of soldiers who fought in World War II never had their pensions fully paid. Um, there were a lot of African soldiers who died in concentration camps, the Camp de Cherouai, um outside of Dakar. This was a camp where uh, returned soldiers from West Africa who had fought for France um, were going through a demobilization process. They were kept there. They were held there. A lot of, a lot of soldiers were experiencing what we now know as PTSD. There was a complaint about the the food, about the conditions in which they were living, and they were fired upon by their French um, lieutenants. And, you know, there there were massive deaths and, and casualties suffered by West African soldiers. And let me guess, the French aren't that good at telling that part of the story in their own museums. Not so, not so much, Will. That's all we have for today. Next time, we'll speak with our colleague, Lewis Nelson, a scholar of architecture, about the significance of walls in a democracy. Stay in touch in the meantime. Find us on Instagram at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Drop a comment on any of our posts and let us know what you think we should be covering this season. There's also lots more to read and see on our webpage. That's dindanger.org. You'll find show notes and links to what we're reading, a virtual syllabus for every episode. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol, Nicholas Scott, and Stephen Betts. 
Ariana Aronson coordinates our promotions and social media. Adine Yeager engineers the show. Our interns are Charlie Burns, Lena Freha, Katie Pyle, Makdu Morad Shah, and Caroline Yu. We have help from Ellie Salvatierra. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Emily Burrell. Until next time.